welcome to our one-on-one -on -one with Alexandria Petch. She is a PhD student from the University of Arizona and she is in Family Studies and Human Development. So just wanna thank you so much for being with us here today. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I, I just, I mean, it's so, I think it's so great we were talking about before we started recording, how we were able to connect on social media and like how having that platform has given us the opportunity to just collect, you know, like collectively work with a lot more activists in this area. I agree. I don't think this was here 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. So yeah, tell our viewers a little bit about, you know, the program that you're in at um, the University of Arizona, what kind of, you know, your PhD studies and, and why you chose that university. Yes, I'm happy to talk about that I am a doctoral student in Family Studies and Human Development at the University of Arizona. And Family Studies and Human Development um, really resonated with my research interest before enrolling in the university because I think I've always wanted to learn about family dynamics and family systems and how families work. And what I really started to notice was, especially as an undergrad, um, the lectures really didn't include families like mine. Um, you know, courses on families and courses on children never really centered or had information regarding families like mine who were impacted by parental incarceration and by familial incarceration. And I think that lack of awareness on families that look like mine, that look like yours, really propelled me to want to be the person to ask questions of how uh, these families need support, how children of incarcerated parents need support. And so I really appreciate Family Studies and Human Development to help me be more inclusive of families that may look different from, I guess, what we see on TV, um, what we see in media. So I am just really great, grateful that I get to um, read about children and incarcerated parents, um, learn about family systems impacted by mass incarceration. And that has been my career as a graduate student for the last eight years that I've been there. That's fantastic. And I'm so appreciative of the work that you're doing. Um, as you mentioned, you know, as well as, you know, my father was incarcerated for most of my childhood. And so, like you said, like you don't really, um, you don't really see that reflected anywhere, right? And it's so, um, and, and like we had, we were talking about before, there's a lack of like harm reduction around what it is to have a family member incarcerated as a child. And people ask you very like invasive and uncomfortable questions. And um, we had talked before that we think it'd be important to educate our audience about some questions that you just shouldn't ask a child or even an adult who has had a parent incarcerated. Um, and I know you had mentioned one question that you don't like being asked, and I agree with you 100%, um, which is just, you know, what did your parent do? What crimes did they do? How many crimes did they do? Um, it's pretty traumatizing for a child, the child, you know, or even an adult. Um, also, the person may not even be aware um, of all of those details. And so we just kind of recommend to our audience 
when you are talking to people who have had family members incarcerated, don't ask what it's for. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Yes, I agree. I think even in passing, if you're an adult and you make comments like, oh, he's in again, what's it for this time? Um, and also the fact that when we think about this idea of crime, like there are, there are certain crimes that are um, less talked about. And so when I think of times where I've been in situations that um, maybe another young person was like, oh, well, he's in a federal prison. It's for a blue or a white collar crime. Um, that sort of, there's that notion that, oh, well, maybe what they did isn't considered as bad. And, but therefore I, what my father's in for must be positioned as, you know, the worst of the worst. And so there's like this hierarchy. Um, and so I just really would, encourage folks to um, not sort of re-traumatize or like trigger or even re-stimulate um, a young person, a child, when it comes to why their parent is in jail or in prison. I agree. Um, I agree with you 100%. And you might have um, some more ideas on things that are supportive to say, but I, I mean, I know for me, like, and I've always felt like the best thing that you could say, if you find out something like that about a person, a person's spouse, a person's brother, sister, parent gets incarcerated is just like, especially if you don't know what that's like, just to say, I don't know what that's like. Is there anything I can do to support? I think that's the really the best thing you can do as an ally. Like, I don't know what that's like. How can I support you? Would you agree with that? I, that's my favorite statement. How can I support you? Um, the person may say, oh, just by listening or, you know, just by um, acknowledging my experience, but that's the best question to ask. How can I support you? Absolutely. And you are doing a really important study that we're going to get to in just a bit, but first we're going to kind of talk about visitation and some of the things that are going on in California when it comes to visitation, because, um, the reality of it is people that are incarcerated have a lot of loved ones outside that want to see them and that the, keeping those, um, those family bonds intact through visitation is very, very crucial. And so, Alexandria, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in California with visitation? With visitation in California, um, there is a assembly bill going on right now called AB 990. And it's to keep families connected, to keep in-person visitation or in-person visiting, I should say, um, as, as an option for families to come see their loved ones who are incarcerated. And the thing is with COVID, of course, in-person visiting halted um, in, in, I would say like a lot of places. And, you know, even in Arizona where I'm at, they, they were going to consider in-person visiting, but they sort of went back and said, you know, for safety reasons, we're not going to have in-person visiting. That makes sense because of the pandemic and, and safety. But I think what a lot of families and community members were worried about is what's happening right now. The fact that because in-person visiting was halted, um, that there would be a push to keep it that way. And um, there would be a push to lean on maybe like video visiting, um, you know, the common emailing, that type of, of open communication between families. 
And I think that's what we're seeing right now with AB 990. So, you know, the Coalition for United Families uh, or for Family Unity is really trying to make sure that, that this bill gets pushed through. And yesterday um, it did get pushed to the Senate floor, but it still has to be voted on. It still has to have the governor's signature. And, you know, I'm in Arizona, but I made sure to call um, Senator Portatino's office to say, I know what it's like to visit my father in the California Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections. I've had, growing up, I visited my father in at least four, maybe five different state prison facilities. And um, it was important for me to um, keep a connection with him and to build a relationship with him, even if it wasn't in the most ideal place, right? Um, but if I didn't have those visits when I think of, if I didn't have them now, um, our relationship, grow, when my relationship with him growing up would have been really different. So I think that visiting, there's a lot of assumptions about visiting someone in prison. There are these assumptions that for children, it's automatically a negative experience. It's like automatically a traumatizing experience. And there's assumptions that um, why do people in prison need visitation? Does it really like help them rehabilitate? And I would really center families here and children who are out, out there trying to get the message across that these moments are important. I think a lot of families make the best of the time they have when visiting their loved ones. And if you don't ask us, you wouldn't know that. You would just have the assumptions that there's a family sitting at a table with five vending machines. You know, what good is that doing? But it's, it's trust me, it's stabilizing the family system is what I would say. I believe that 100%. So thank you for shining light on such an important topic. Um, and, you know, I, I was not able to visit my, my father when he was in prison. And, you know, as an abolitionist who, you know, just doesn't want any prisons at all, um, while they're still here, I wish that we had things that were like beautiful, you know, playgrounds and like what looked like a nature park and like a ice cream parlor. So I just think it's, I think that it's not fair to punish children and those people that love people that are incarcerated by restricting like meaningful interactions with the people that they love. So I appreciate you um, highlighting that. And, and I think with that, we should talk about your study and this is, I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, yeah, I love what you're doing. So please tell us a little bit more about your study, who you're recruiting for, why you're doing it, all of the good details on that. <laughs> yes, I am working on my dissertation study and it's called the Adolescent Girls of Color Identity and Familial Incarceration Study. So the study is in the name itself, but um, I really wanted to center black and brown girls um, and young women who've experienced familial incarceration. Again, Parental incarceration, like we have the numbers, we know how many um, children and youth are impacted by that. But I started to really think about, even in my own family, what about my family members who have siblings incarcerated, um, have had grandparents, aunts, uncles? Because a lot of times, 
families aren't just comprised of the nuclear family unit. The extended family unit is just as important, plays just as an important role in a young person's life. And when I thought of my study, I wanted inclusivity is the word that I really wanted to, um, I wanted that to be my goal, right? I wanted to include both black and brown girls and young women who've had a parent or caregiver inside a jail or prison facility. And I also wanted to include those black and brown girls who had family members um, that weren't a caregiver, like a, a sibling, an aunt and uncle, who uh, was formerly or currently inside a jail or prison facility. And so that was sort of the first puzzle piece of my study. Um, the second puzzle piece is, you know, wow, Black, Indigenous, girls of color is what you're focusing on. That's very specific. And I thought about the fact that we all have different needs. Um, we're, we're all unique. Our identity is made up of so many different aspects, whether it's our ethnic racial identity, gender identity, sexual orientation identity, and so on and so forth. What really propels me to focus on Black and Brown girls is to be inclusive of girls and young women who need different supports um, versus sort of just putting everyone together in one room and saying, well, we're here for all children incarcerated parents, we're helping everyone. Um, you know, I'm motivated by the fact that here I am as a cis hetero um, girl who had a father incarcerated, but how might my experiences be different from a um, let's say, you know, let's say someone who's a Asian or Vietnamese um, girl or young woman who has a brother incarcerated. What are the experiences of queer, queer girls of color who have grandparents maybe previously incarcerated? What are the needs of um, Black trans girls who had family members incarcerated, right? My needs are different from their needs and their needs are different from my needs. And the thing is, all our needs deserve to be met. And to really push that point, I think a lot of times when I was thinking of my study, I did get comments like, wow, that's really specific that you're focusing on black and brown girls. Um, I've, my work has been called divisive, um, you know, because I am in, I'm not focusing on white girls, I'm focusing on black and brown girls. But here's the thing. I think a lot of times with children of incarcerated parents, people have really good intentions of helping us. And sort of what happens is there's this notion of a one size fits all. Like, because you had an incarcerated parent and you did and you did and you did, you all have the same problems. Um, and you all have, um, the same processes by which you thrive and are resilient. And that's not true. There's enough resources to go around to help all of our unique um, issues that we're navigating. And I think a lot of times because, you know, there's 2.7 million children incarcerated parents, people think, well, there's not enough resources to help more than that. There's not enough resources to help 
um, other youth who are kind of impacted by mass incarceration, but it's not their parent, it's their brother, it's their sister. And really what my study is trying to say, it's okay to center black and brown girls. Um, it's okay to be inclusive and be accountable to black and brown girls because my liberation is tied to your, their liberation. Your liberation, when we think of liberation from mass incarceration from the prison industrial complex, is tied to Black and brown girls' liberation. And really, when we are liberated, meaning that we are free from systems of power and privilege, is the way I conceptualize it, we go back and we bring everyone else along. You know, we go back and we say, okay, like, let's, we're bringing along um, boys with, incar with incarcerated family members. We're bringing along white girls and white women who experience familial incarceration. We bring people along. Um, and, and I will end on this is my study is really predicated on when we think of research and academia, research has a hard history. And the history is that a lot of research that focused on youth development, um, youth resilience was really only focused on middle-class white youth. And when that research was done, then the research would say, okay, well, let's apply this to um, black youth, to brown youth, to immigrant youth. But their findings or the way they did the research didn't necessarily, you know, it wasn't culturally relevant to, um, to all youth, um, to non-white youth. And so what I'm really trying to say is like historically black and brown girls stories are invisible in research. And really what my study is trying to do is say, we're bringing black and brown girls stories, their lived experience from the margin to the center. And from, from that point, we're going to, I'm hoping, I know I'm going to learn um, how they make meaning of their identity as someone who has an incarcerated family member, how they navigate their many different identities um, in conjunction with having an identity connected to someone who's incarcerated. And also I know I'm gonna learn what the roles of schools, of families, of communities are in, in the lives of black and brown girls who are impacted by familial incarceration. And I know that's long, but I, I do want to be able to say that with all of that said, that's sort of how I came to my study. With all of that said, I am doing a research project uh, where I'm recruiting 14 to 24-year-old girls and young women of color. And when I say young women of color, I really am saying um, women who, girls, adolescent girls and young women who are Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian, Arab, multiracial, because the thing is, we are, we are multiracial, we're biracial. Um, really, if you are an adolescent girl, young woman of color, and you've had a family member, not just a parent, but a family member who has been previously or is currently incarcerated, um, I'm inviting them to enroll in my study that takes us through a storytelling interview, not just an interview where to me an interview is like, there has to be a right answer, but like you are a storyteller. You are a subject matter expert in this study. I am learning from you is how I want every adolescent girl and young women of color to come into the study. Um, to really, again, story your life and what is the narrative 
that you tell about your experiences, not what everyone else says, not what your family says, not what society thinks of someone who has an incarcerated parent, but what's your story? Because stories make meaning of our lives. They tell us why things happen, how things work. Um, And, you know, my favorite quote by Glennie Martin is, those closest to the problem are closest to the solution, yet furthest away from the resources. So black and brown girls and young women, they are closest to the problem. They're closest to the solution. And I'm hoping that my study is just one tiny resource to amplify um, what support what support looks like for them, what are their needs, what are the struggles, what are the processes by which they are thriving and they are resilient, because I'm not just interested in their trauma and their hardships, I'm also interested in their joy, and one of my favorite questions so far in my study has been an ending question where I say, what brings you joy, and when do you feel most free, and a lot of girls and young women take some time to really think about that, but you just I can really feel that joy when they're explaining when they feel more, most free, when they feel most joyful. So every, all the interviews are on Zoom. They're open to anyone in the United States. Um, girls and young women receive up to $40 for their participation because I believe in, in paying and compensating people for their labor and telling me their story. Um, and, you know, I just have a lot of protocols in place where um, girls and young women get the questions in advance, because like we said, you and I, we are really worried about what questions are going to be asked. I'm still worried about what questions are going to be asked when someone interviews me. So I wanted to make it a point that questions are received well in advance, uh, that you can skip, you can um, literally say, I don't want to talk about family, let's talk about school. Um, I also recorded myself doing the interview. I had my research assistant, Montana. We did mock interviews of each other. And so I recorded that and I share that recording and that transcript with the girls and young women in the study. I tried to really create a resources document so that when you are um, in the study, you have a document that you can refer back to. Um, I especially thought of about when I was an adolescent what would I have wanted as a resource um, within arm's reach? So that's super long-winded. I'm going to take a break, but I'm just really excited to keep centering stories and people and yeah. No, that's perfect. Thank you. I mean, your passion comes through for what you're doing. You're very excited. um, And I'm very excited for the work that you're doing. I think it's fantastic, you know, especially doing it on the doctoral level, I mean, that's just very important. Um, If there is like, say you could just get like one thing from the study, like if you were like, hey, this is something that would result, do you you have any idea of what you would want to obtain um, information wise? I did hear you talk a lot about just like meeting people's needs and kind of learning more about what unique needs were. And so, you know, I'm not sure if that's, would be the main thing. I'm sure you're probably wanting to get a lot from the study, right? and I think you will. <laughs> people don't usually like the question that's like, what's the one, if people only get one thing, they're like, no, I wanna get multiple things. So um, so think on it. And yeah, I mean, I think I think what you're doing is great. And you know, as somebody that's like predominantly white, I, I will tell you, it was like a little, I was like excited and bummed when I saw it, but I wanna share that. Cause it was like um, for a long time, you know, being, be, having a father incarcerated and you know, you don't, you don't, people don't talk about it necessarily. And so, I was like, oh, she's doing this thing. Oh, wait, I'm not included. But 
you know, I really quickly had to like check myself and say like the, you know, I understand the importance of doing things that are very, very specific to a group and marginalized groups, like you had mentioned, don't have the same level of studies and resources and things that have gone into like providing these very specialized and like needs-based kind of studies and programs. And so there's so much value in that. And, and, you know, I hope you don't have to, I hope you don't, I think everything you explained is incredibly important, but I hope you don't feel like you have to continue to explain yourself because what you're doing is incredibly valuable. It's going to be a wonderful addition, um, you know, to the research field. It's going to help a lot of kids that have had parents incarcerated. And like you said, it will help everyone. Um, you know, I've, I do women's coalitions and I, and I've lost, I've lost friends who thought that I shouldn't do women's coalitions, women friends who thought, you know, men should be in here. And there's, there's this, you just have to kind of go with your faith and your gut and, and your own lived experiences and say, like, I know, you know, you as a woman of color know what you experienced, right? And you know that you had unique needs and you know you're not alone. And so there's tons of other women out there, young girls like you who are gonna reach out to you. They're gonna share their experiences and you're gonna, I, I'm, I look forward to reading your study and continuing to stay in contact with you. I just, I really appreciate everything you're doing in this field. It's, it's big and, um, and I hope you realize that. I, I'm sure you do, but you know, it, it does take a village and, and I have seen that there's a lot of activists out there that are supporting your work and, and I just look forward to seeing um, this and seeing how your work grows. So thank you. I received that affirmation and I think if you ask me what's one thing um, to take away from the study is what you're saying, right? That teachers, that families, that community see the value right, and sort of the almost richness of um, really wanting to meet the needs of Black and brown girls, especially Black and brown girls who have um, different identities that are marginalized. Um, because it's, right, it's only value to your organization. It's only value to your classroom. It's value to your family system to say, these are the ways that, um, you know, this, this young girl, young woman is asking for support and here's how I can meet that support. Um, and so I just like, that's exactly what I'm looking for um, because what I don't want, and I'll even use me as an example, if I don't want to host a conference or a retreat or a get together and assume that I am meeting the needs of everyone in that room. Um, that doesn't feel good. That makes people feel really invisible. That doesn't make people feel safe. And I've, I've had to experience youth who don't come back to a certain organization or a certain after school program because it wasn't safe for them because their identity in terms of sexual orientation or gender identity um, wasn't being um, it wasn't being like considered in terms of like the curriculum or the practices and policies in inside said organization. Um, so I just, we have a lot to learn. I've learned so much from the eight um, stories that I've been able to listen to. Um, 
And I'm, this is only one piece, right? Like a dissertation is big, but it's like one piece of your work. And I know that I want to extend it way after it's done in terms of um, sharing, you know, I envision sharing um, like pamphlets or like handouts or, or printouts with families, with schools that like, here are the ways that you can support XX. Um, and also even um, when we think about prisons, like I'm, I, I know it's been said before, I'm sure correctional officers have heard it. I'm sure wardens have heard it, but these dress codes, like they're not, they're not just a matter of it's annoying. It's actually for me, at least in what I'm hearing and from my personal experience, it's traumatizing to be told that what you're wearing is either, you know, um, you're wearing wire in your bra, you're assumed that you're going to bring that in as a weapon. Like you're criminalizing my body, you're sexualizing my body. And more chances than not, I'm probably getting dress code messages in my school and in my family. And so that I'm excited too, that girls and young, black girls and young women, their voices are going to be heard, especially around how they view the, um, mass incarceration, how they view the criminal justice system, the punishment system, and, and, you know, what do they, do they think the criminal justice system or the punishment system plays a role in how they view themselves? Because that's important to know, because if, you know, we have an opportunity to voice how we feel in those settings, when we interact with those settings, um, to make those changes, to get those policies and practices and protocols changed. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so important. And I mean, all those things that there's so many things that people don't know about, you know, um, when it comes to these different settings. And, you know, I, I love that you talk about education and like how that could be changed and how, you know, teachers and, you know, different kinds of education systems can be more aware and, and more sensitive and more accommodating to black and brown girls that have had family members incarcerated. I envision, you know, a future where, you know, black and brown little girls aren't criminalized um, for just being who they are. Um, and, you know, that we can completely eliminate the prison population and, and we don't have to deal with these issues anymore. But in the meantime, what you were doing is phenomenal. And so I'd like to know, I guess, how people can get in contact with you. Well, how many people do you, are you still ideally looking to interview? How they can get in contact with you? Yes. So I am really looking to um, have a storytelling interview with 18 more adolescent girls and young women of color. Um, My goal is 25. And so there's still 18 more um, spots available for folks to enroll. Um, And in terms of where to find me, so I do have an Instagram page And um, that is goc.family.incarceration.study. I also have a website where you can take um, our sign-up survey. Um, I'm sure I can give that to you to post as well, but it is cals.arizona.edu slash A-G-O-C study um, forward slash. And um, yeah, it's, I would just really appreciate, even if you are not directly impacted, if you're an ally, um, if you can share my, spread the word about this study, 
Um, it's been a struggle because um, I think in the world of, of research, um, we've had issues with like bots signing up and, and creating fake um, appointments in our in our system. And we really just want to do justice, you know, even if it's a little justice for black girls, black and brown girls um, and young women. And so just if you have any questions, I'm always open um, to answer them, address concerns, uh, because I know it's important to to know who's asking the questions as well. And I recognize that and I respect that. Yeah, I think that's an important part. And like, so uh, can people opt into the study and still remain confidential if they'd like? Or do they need to, like, as far as like, can they talk to you, but then say, I don't want my name in this study? Yeah, so that's such a great question. Um, we ask that um, folks give us a fake name or a pseudonym to use. And that's actually been pretty cool to like have girls and young women think about what name they want to use um, and what name they're connected to. And it's really this like power in naming yourself. And that's the way you remain confidential. Um, you know, so Elisha, if you want it to be named like um, Whitney, like that's going to be how we reference say like from Whitney's story, this is what we learned, if that makes sense. So there is that part of confidentiality that we really, um, that we, that we really uphold as like an ethic in the way that we do research. That's great. That's good to know. Cause there's like, you know, there's a lot of trust, um, issues and just things that it's like, it's who am I talking to? Who is this person? And, you know, is my information going to be protected? So having a fake name is great. I would go by Nicole. That would be my name. <laughs> um, and so again, you said the girls are 18 to 25, is that correct? Uh, 14 to 24. So essentially um, adolescents, right, like 14 to 18, and then also young women, 18 to 24. So their age range is 14 years old to 24. If you are under 18, we will ask for caregiver permission. But if you are over 18, um, you can go ahead and sign up and enroll in the study, but we really are opening it up to 14 to 24 year old um, black and brown adolescent girls and young women. Perfect. And then about how much of their time will it be like a time commitment? We say 30 to 90 minutes, depending on how much you want to share. And if you need to, if you're stretched for time and need to leave, we can always reschedule another time to come together. Um, but what we've been seeing is that on average, um, the stories shared are so rich that it's looking between 60, sometimes 90 minutes. Um, but again, we're respectful of time and we recognize that folks have a lot of responsibilities. So we're, we're just going to be as flexible as we can. Okay. So about an hour, hour and a half. Yeah. Great. Compensation. They get to talk to you, which is cool. And this is for the greater good. So, and it looks like you're doing, you're taking all the right steps to like ensure people's confidentiality, which is fantastic. Um, I appreciate you so much for everything you're doing. Um, is there any last words that you have for our viewers? Oh, this has been so great. Um, I, I don't have any last words. I just would, would, I guess, appreciate people to really reflect on um, what are just 
so many new, what are knowledge that we, I guess, let me, let me back up. Okay. So you're good. I just, I just want people to consider (laughs) that, um, to be open and be willing to, um, have knowledge produced by black and brown girls and young women, um, and see, consider the value in that and reflect on why that is valuable. Um, And I guess if you are, especially um, if you are a adolescent girl or a young woman of color who's been impacted by familial incarceration, again, you are the subject matter expert. Um, You bring deep experiential knowledge into this field, you are directly building this foundation of the ways that we as a society need to support um, black and brown girls who are impacted by mass incarceration. So um, stories are powerful, stories are an act of joy. In what I've seen so far, stories are an act of resistance. Um, And yeah, that's what I would end with. (laughs) That's fantastic. Thank you so much. We have covered what not to say to people who have had family members incarcerated. We have covered visitation and issues going on in that area and why that's so important um, and additional information about your study and why the, you know, the, this topic specific of black and brown girls is really, really important and valid and valuable and brings so much to the research field. So. Uh, doctoral candidate, Alexandria Petch. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure getting to know you a little bit and I look forward to um, continuing to work with you. Thank you so much, Alicia. It's been a pleasure to be here and I'm so looking forward to the connections that we'll be making together. Likewise, thank you. Thank you so much.